0: How about we start things off with a little good news? This is something you don't hear too often. It turns out there could be way more free books than we realized. Millions
1: of books may have been in public domain for a long time and just nobody ever checked. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I guess prior to 1964, books had a 28-year copyright term. But to extend it, you actually had to send in a separate form. And of course, you know, with, with no internet, no easy way to do that. Are you really going to? Who has the time? Turns out not that many people. Thankfully, the New York Public Library has done a whole bunch of work to go find out which of these books are out there, and now you can download them online. Yeah, you can search
0: the whole thing. There's literally millions from 1923 to 1964 that are now in public domain. I, I, I bet we will discover in a few weeks
1: some great old books about computers. I think it's great to be aware of these things too, right? Because that's kind of, that's mm-hmm. part of how this should work. After a time, it, it should be part of the commons and we can all learn from, use, sample, whatever. I love free books. This is great.
2: One challenge I have with that is that there's literally millions of books. So how do you know which one to start with or or how to, you know, it's just like a giant dump. So um, is there anybody curating or?
0: I think in a few weeks, you'll start seeing that. You'll see people that are adventurous and they go look it up and they, they find some, you know, historical person from different industries. I bet there'll be books about photography, there'll be books about computers, there'll be about the, you know, very fundamentals from back then that uh, we take for granted now. I actually, I'm willing to bet in a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe even a year or two, things will surface that are absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, I find this also very dangerous because I I remember spending a week just going through Project Gutenberg trying to see which books were (laughs) worthy of my
0: time. Oh yeah, it's going to be a rabbit hole, a big old rabbit hole. Bring it on. Oh, hey there, and welcome into Linux Unplugged, episode 313. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hey there, Wes. Hello! Guess what? I'm very excited about today's show. Huge show. You know, it happens sometimes. This was going to be the episode, though, that I was really dreading. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I could tell. Yeah, we, we had to put in a little extra effort, but we got something really special out of this week's episode, so I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy we did it. And, uh, I, I mean, how often can I say this? We're going to do things differently. From here on out, Whoa. After this episode, how about that? How about that? I'm excited. Mr. Cheese Bacon is here too. Hey, cheesy. Hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, you know, doing a podcast. Other than that, not much. Hey, Pretty good. Nice. Yeah. You know, podcast is life. And of course, our virtual lug is here. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. I see CM and Minnie Mac and Hawkins and Brent and Popey's been lurking in there and. Emax Romancer is up there in the uh, quiet listening as well. It's a, it's a nice showing on Glad a Tuesday. Glad to have you all. On a warm Tuesday afternoon. And uh, we have many in the jblive.tv chat room too. So it's nice to see everybody here. Why don't we kick a few things off with community news and then we'll get into my thoughts on the Raspberry Pi 4 as a desktop. I did get the desktop kit. It arrived a week ago. Been using it for a week and I have some thoughts. But community news first, Mr. Payne. And we follow up with the... Topic we talked about last week with one of the co founders of Manjaro, Philip, about bundling Free Office by default in a future version of Manjaro. They've updated their decision. They've done a bit of a 180, not a complete 180. Maybe. Pick, pick an angle here. Come on. Maybe a 90? Okay. It's a, it's a pivot. Mm-hmm. And they will offer
1: the user choice during installation LibreOffice, Free Office, or No Office. Ah, so as an additional install time option. What do you think of that? Not so bad. I mean, really, it seems fine, right? If you want to have have more choice, why not? You can have a default. This is a way of not I suppose there's probably still a default, right, in which whichever radio button is selected first. I think myself I'd choose the no office version. Yeah, same. I I prefer not to have one.
0: Um I bounced this idea off of Joe on Linux Action News, and I want to bounce it off of you guys a little bit. It feels a little bit like the outrage crew showed up and got the developers to change their plans. Like they were gonna do something kind of bold and differentiating, and they were gonna take a bit of a dramatic step, something that's a bigger step than you normally see a distribution take, and instead they ended up doing something that's not quite as aggressive, not quite as differentiating. Again, side note, I actually think it's the right way to go, but I'm playing devil's advocate here, Cheese. Are we not once again seeing outrage-led development in open source and with social media and the forums and blogs and podcasts, although I think we did a pretty good job, but of course I would think that, are we not seeing an outrage machine that generates reactions so fast that developers are just
3: inundated, and then they scramble, and then we get compromises? I mean, I think that you know it does get hammed up, right, within all the the Linux circles, um, and and how it's you know it's really easy to just go after someone and attack them for not using the most obvious free option available. Uh, and trying something different, I really admire Manjaro for stepping out of the box and trying something different. I agree with you that it's kind of, it's not a step back. Uh, it's kind of a sidestep. You know, they didn't they didn't roll all the way back. This isn't one of those, um, you know, things where I feel like they were they're still standing their ground. I'll put it that way. Uh, I don't think feel that the devs were completely pressured to do this. Um, and and it's something that. We're going to have to accept, I think, as a Linux community, that these things are going to happen and that distributions are going to evolve. And that means partnering with other people. Um, and really, at the end of the day, you still have your choice. If you don't want free office, you don't have to use it. Um, you can install something else. Like you said, they have different installers, which will allow you to select. You've also got the archetype, uh, or I think it's the architect, edition of manjaro so you can really dial in you know i've I've heard backlash on oh well you know they only limit you and pigeonhole you to one de well you can use their own spin and build it out to really whatever you want i have a sense that they they felt they had to step back away from this uh, because of the pushback and i think it really still shows the maturity level within our community sometimes
0: here's where again i want to say i uh I, I still appreciate that LibreOffice is free software. It's functional. It was an option. Like, There's a lot of elements to this conversation, but that's the part you just ended on that I want to touch on here. I think what ends up happening, and this is just sort of based on the emails and tweets and telegrams that I get, is the people that are the most connected are often the most passionate about free software. And they respond very quickly. And they respond very vocally. I, I got a lot of people that tweeted me telling me, that they're ripping Manjaro off their system because of this. People asking on Hacker News uh, for replacement suggestions. And on our Linux, people were going on about the different ways to to migrate to other platforms. And what happens is that's on day one and day two. That's like the first 48 hours. And you really saw a lot go down in the Manjaro forms in the first 48 hours. What happens like around hour 64... And, and further, is I start getting emails from people who are busy. They have other things to do than to follow the daily, perhaps even hourly developments of the They've managerial up distribution. up later, later in the week,
1: listened to some shows, read some news, whatever.
0: Exactly. People li- downloaded the episode, they heard the interview, and then they sent me some feedback. And as the week went on, and this will continue for weeks, I'm gonna, this, people will be emailing me for weeks because they won't hear this episode. Um, as the long tail of that feedback gets longer... More and more the trend line is people that support the switch to free office because they're already using it. And I've gotten things like, yeah, I've been advocating free office for a while and people always jump on me for it. Um I'm not trying to defend, again, any decisions made here. I'm pointing out that the people that are most active in the initial 48 hours of the conversation are not representative of the community. They're representative of a slice of the most
1: passionate community, right? I mean, even just saying you're going to like change operating systems, right? Again, that's like a it's a fast thing to do. You have to care a lot.
0: Nobody who has a lot of things going on is like, oh, "I'll just reload my OS today." I've got a machine upstairs that is a Frankenstein build that I need to reload, and I've been planning to do it for a month. And because it's working just enough, I can't get around to it. Right? I got all these wackadoodle <laughs> workarounds for it too. It's ridiculous. Um And my point is that it's not representative of the full community, but it's the brunt of the feedback the developers initially get. And then they want to respond quickly because they don't want the outrage to escalate. And so they're really stuck in a catch-22. And,
1: and I, I can, you know, there's a lot of sympathy here, too. You know, when we talked to Phil, you could tell, you know, he was doing it to try to differentiate Mongeo. I think he spends a lot of time working on as do all the people involved in the project. And this is just a lot of mental stress, right? When you're like, oh, okay, you, some people really didn't like that, but. You got to also, you know, from both sides, community members should you talk about what they want or don't want in their projects. But you got to remember that, like, like not like they're doing this to, for some evil agenda. They're trying to make the thing they work on better.
0: Brent, I'm going to go to you now, because what I have to imagine, there's some similarities between what you do and creative expression in creating something like a distribution. It is a, absolutely a technical undertaking, but it is also for these creators their way to express their creativity. And sometimes the very people you're making that creative work for have very harsh feedback. And you have to know when to cave and compromise, and you have to know when to stand your ground. And I guess the point I'm trying to make to you, and I'm curious if it resonates with you, is it feels like we're seeing – maybe a lot more compromised these days because of the accessibility of the developers.
2: Yeah, this sounds like a little bit of criticism, but to me, uh, one of the advantages of having all these distributions is that the developers can create the product that they want themselves to use and the options that they themselves want to see, right? And um, I think you've heard from a lot of people that options is better. I mean, that was one of our possible choices for titles last week, right? And um, without that sort of creative freedom, for the developers and those behind the distributions. Um, if if everyone's feeling pigeonholed into the same place, we're going to end up with five distributions that all taste the same. And uh, I don't think that's what we
1: want.
0: Also, if people can't fully express their creative vision, I mean, we're getting very meta here, but if you can't, if you can't express your creative vision, you're probably going to burn out.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, especially if you're doing something not for money.
2: You're going to lose that um, joy that comes with creating product that you're really jazzed about, right? You're going to end up creating something kind of mediocre that you're...
1: Maybe not quite as proud of.
2: Yeah, exactly, right? And who wants to work on something mediocre? You want to work on something that gets you up in the morning.
1: It does seem like this is sort of an extension of what we've seen in daily life, right? Like with the popularity of Twitter and fast feedback cycles and outrage coming before all the facts are in or can even be sort of sifted through and understood, maybe took a little while to percolate to our culture as well.
0: Yeah, I think part of the issue there is... You have to put as much responsibility on the people taking in the outrage and acting on it as the people that are experiencing the outrage. What I'm trying to say is a new skill now when you're managing a large community or when you're building a large software project is learning to properly interpret that volume of feedback right. in the correct way that is still good for you and the project and your users. And so that's why I think there is room for compromise on some of these issues. Of course, of course. But, um, and and like in this case, this this probably is a net positive for all. Um, But where do we draw that line? And I think I could cite three or four just recent examples of when this has happened, as I did in
1: LAN. And how do we do this in a way, a more productive way so that the Manjaro developers feel comfortable right. with the next version of this, right? Because it doesn't seem like it's going to stop. No. Everybody's more connected. Yeah. There's- but like, can't, you, can't you imagine then like, you have another great idea that might be a little controversial, and now you're just like, no, it's not worth it. I don't want to deal with this again.
3: Well, I think that it's, it's part of human nature, too. You know, That one negative feedback, and let's say, let's just throw a wild number out there. Let's say they have 250,000 users, and you get 500 people, giving you negative feedback, even less. 50 people, they give you negative feedback. That's really going to impact your decision on the direction that you go. And that's not really speaking for the whole user base. You know, it's that outraged, knee-jerk reaction, and it's it's kind of sad.
0: Yeah, it's challenging. It is really kind of, a, I think it's going to be a larger challenge because of the open nature, the public nature of this type of development. Because keep in mind, this wasn't even a finished version of Manjaro that shipped, this was something they were going to do in a release candidate, right? Um, and in, and that wasn't even like the final release candidate. It was just something they were going to try for a cycle. Um, and if it worked, they'd go with it. And then it would have been
1: official in the new Manjaro release, right? Or how often do we see little little bundles of outrage from things on mailing lists before any decisions are made? Right? We're already we're already talking about it.
0: That was one of the reasons I really wanted to reach out to Philip and. Uh, Things connected thanks to a friend of the show, and we were able to get him on here and get it straight from him. And I, I have to give them credit. I think they came to a compromise that will make their community happy, and that's just as important as making good software. So yeah, absolutely, uh, congratulations to them. Um, and hopefully, they uh, you know they build up a little bit more of a thick skin so the next time something like this comes around, because I think that's a good position for Enjo to push that edge a little bit. To push it forward a little, especially as Endeavor OS comes around and you can get a pretty vanilla Arch experience out of that. It's nice to see Manjaro kind of go a little more cutting edge, try things that really differentiate. um, Because to their credit and to Pop OS's credit, they've been getting more and more coverage on YouTube, which is bringing in more and more people. And it's funny that those are the first distros. Like Manjaro is like, what? Yeah, okay. okay. Wouldn't have called that in a predictions (laughs) episode, but it seems to be working. So hopefully the hopefully the team continues on and um, the user base is happy with that. As a Fedora user, I'm kind of happy with this new minimization team that's been announced. Now, I don't get too excited; it's it's early days, but there's a new minimization team forming, focusing on minimizing the installation size of a lot of the popular apps, runtimes, and other bits of software in Fedora
1: have I got you yet, Wes? No, that sounds great. And what I like about this, too, is it's not just like a one-off effort. The goal is to build an environment where it's easy for the Fedora maintainers to keep things small over time. And so they're going to dig into stuff like Apache and Nginx and all sorts of various systems all over the all over the operating system, trying to make them small. That's great.
0: That could also benefit CentOS and RHEL down the road. Well, this has just got kind of, that kind of
1: work that, you know, that's not necessarily fun. It's not necessarily sexy, but it's going to benefit the whole ecosystem.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Wes, this last story we threw in here, uh, I think Drew found this, and I just had Wes Payne all over it. I always love to give you a hard time for uh, doing everything with KExec. Sure do. Wes wants to give a distro a try, creates a RAM disk and uses KExec, and it goes to town. It's it's hilarious. It's also very fast. And um, it looks like some enterprising Google engineers have gotten the Windows kernel to boot via Kexec in like a special circumstance like with like i think it's like early days uh
1: implementation of the efi boot services yeah exactly so with Kexec and linux you can just like load the new kernel and sort of jump to it hand off control to the new kernel and since mind. they control everything right you can get that set up so the kernel knows what to do and it just you know starts running and you've got a new kernel running i just don't understand how it hands off the devices like my, my oh it reads discovers the devices and stuff
0: and the video cards don't crap out and stuff you can have some hardware issues for sure. Yeah. But not on your
1: Intel. No, I, uh-huh. I haven't had too many issues. Uh-huh. And you know, um, you can then use stuff like system, systemd has, you know, try to get the system to the most almost reset state and then load the new kernel. So there are some, you know, a lot of, of, of things you can do, but it, it's already integrated. You just do systemctlk exactly. Of course. You're, you're off ready to go. Gosh. So here's the thing. Windows doesn't really boot like that anymore right I mean Microsoft was really involved in the whole UEFI thing happening anyway and they actually use it and one of the things that EFI provides is these boot services and these are nice little helpers so you can grab disks and have the firmware interact before you've got your operating system loaded mm. Windows bootloader definitely takes advantage of those mm. and so before with KExec, you didn't you know you didn't have that because you're dumping everything you've got and you're starting fresh. this is an implementation basically where as you're k execing the kernel can provide these things to Windows to get it up and running, and you can transition to get Windows actually started. Because once, the whole thing about like exiting the boot services is once you've got the operating system up and going, all the boot services code is discarded, and that way it could actually still be like a clean k exec, right? So it, it, the kernel provides the little bits of UEFI Windows needs until it can fully hand it off. Yes, right. So you start KExecing, you get like the Windows bootloader going, you give it a little EFI stuff, it calls exit boot services. All that Linux code is gone, and Windows is it's off clean Windows. Yep. Wow. Another part that was neat about this is, um, you know, this was a post up because Google's been working on Linux boot, which is a project to replace as much of the EFI stack with Linux as we can. So that that's where this mm. is going to be useful. On Twitter, someone else who just like that day, this was like a, a week or two ago, had got Windows doing the same thing, running with a, like a custom kernel module. So it seems to be multiple parties are interested in that. And hopefully that means there's enough momentum to actually get this polished and merged somewhere.
0: Hmm. I, what I like about this is when I installed uh, my T480 ThinkPad, I said to myself, I will never dual boot this machine. This will always only run Linux. And and I've held true to that. I have come up with ways to, well, I've done PCI Passer to get accelerated Windows if I need right. it. It's, ironically, I never need it, but I got it working. <laughs> I use it mostly to just accelerate other Linux distros. Uh, but uh, this could be another great way to have a Linux system with a Windows install sitting around somewhere on, a, on the disk that you could boot up when you need it and have full hardware, full
1: performance. mm mm-hmm.
4: Oh, that's, gosh, this is it's also just stuff. neat
1: because it's uh, you know this was never really intended. It's not like Microsoft has blessed this. It's just some really good hacking in the old school sense.
0: Well, you know, m- like they say, most of Azure runs Linux, so uh, maybe they'll just uh, maybe they'll just bite the bullet, switch everything to Linux, and then just keg into Windows when they need it all to Azure. Amazing. <laughs> All right, let's do a little bit of that housekeeping here on The Old Show. We got a few things to cover. A local event is just near wrapping up its call for papers. Siegel, 2019, it is August. I think your deadline is August 11th, and we're recording on the 6th right now. Get them in now. Yeah, so get it in. Get it in. And then Siegel itself runs November 15th through the 16th. You've done
1: a talk there before. Yeah, two years ago. It was a it was a really good time. They were great to the presenters. You know, so if you want to get involved, super friendly, accommodating conference. Um, I know last year they they had childcare available. Um, so they really they really care about the people coming to the conference, whether you're presenting or just want to attend. And it's just a great spot in downtown Seattle too. Oh yeah, so. beautiful. If you want if you want an excuse
0: to come visit the city. Yeah. I can't think of a better one. You go down there, you, you attend a great event, and
1: then there's a great evening to be had. I'll also add their uh, CFP page has just some great references. If you're giving a talk somewhere else, they've got a ton of good links for, you know, how do you assess what you're, what audience you're talking to or just some good tips on presentations. Mm, good to know. Yeah, that is really handy to get
0: you going, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Also, congratulations to the hard, hard working individuals behind the scenes here at Linux Academy to get the new website launched. If you haven't seen linuxacademy.com in a little bit, go check out the new website. It's looking sharp. I was in some meetings when they were putting this together, and um, I'm just going to say, another site's gone dark. Dark mode uh, for the web.
3: They did a fantastic job, man. The the product team over there, Alex and Joel and Ingrid and all those people over there at Linux Academy, I've been you know eyeing it and kind of seeing it as it's being developed and the artwork and the new styling and it's pretty, it's, it's pretty legit, man. I, I like it a lot. They did a great job.
0: It's the best-looking training website ever. I mean, it's just gorgeous. they just done a killer job. It's Linuxacademy.com to check that out. Also, if you haven't checked out the community section for a while, there's some free stuff over there. And now 180-plus Linux Academy courses have transcripts. Um, there's more. So it's Huge. actually landing all the time. Um, another batch lands tomorrow. Uh, future courses are, la- are launching with transcripts, and they're interactive transcripts. Yeah. So you can you can get time codes and stuff. You can jump around to that. We
1: might just have to s- steal how they did that because I want that for our stuff. It's, it's super, super cool. impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of engineering, and the end result is just great for actually using it to learn. Yeah, accessibility and to learn. I, I think it's really cool.
0: And one last thing while we're talking about it, they're doing some swag giveaways for the uh, YouTube channel, LinuxAcademy.com. If you are a community member or a paid member or you subscribe to the YouTube channel, there's a form we'll have linked in the show notes at Mm -hmm. linuxunplugged.com slash 313 for a swag giveaway, special limited edition. Oh, limited edition. It's a great team of designers at Linux Academy, which she's a part of, and he's a great designer himself, but the whole team, like the stuff they come up with, the website, the the art for the courseware, and the swag, like the best swag. Such swag. I want to know how I get my hands on that swag. I wonder if they'll make that yeah, available. Can we get to like an
1: inside deal?
0: They got they got some good swag. So um check that out. Also, the call for papers coming up soon. If you're gonna be at Seagull, let us know. Head over to our telegram group, jupiterbroadcasting.com telegram. Jump in there and let us know if you're gonna be at Seagull. We're trying to get our Seagull game plan together and we'd like to hear yeah, from you. Get some JB critical mass. Mm-hmm. That could be a thing. So uh, let's uh, start organizing now to see what we can get together for November. All right, so I've been kicking around the Raspberry Pi 4 as a workstation for a week. That's how it was pitched. So I dropped like a hundred and change on the desktop kit. Not so much overall, really. I mean, really, if you think about, yeah, if you think about what computers used to cost and what you used to get, uh, this is not bad, really, overall. The specs of this thing are, are... pretty remarkable when you compare just like some of my first computers as a kid. I got the 4GB RAM edition. That's what comes in the desktop kit. It doesn't come with any passive cooling, and it does come in an enclosure. And I have pictures of the unboxing of the enclosure. It's a really nice enclosure. It looks sharp. The keyboard is nice. It feels pretty good, you know, compared to a lot of smart smart
1: Lightweight
0: keyboard. It's got a little USB hub built into Mm. it, which is very nice. It also includes in the box, the official Raspberry Pi beginner's guide and um, everything you need to get going, including the the mouse and the power supply.
3: I'm kind of curious about that beginner's guide. Is it is it walking you through that? Does it have like screenshots of the desktop and kind of explaining the the system to you? I'm
0: not sure. Wes, will go see if he can find it because uh, uh, I didn't, (laughs) I don't open the
3: manual, (laughs) cheese.
4: Well, I think that it's
3: super awesome that they actually shipped a device with a manual. I I remember like actually getting a physical distro that had a, you know, 500 page manual in it back in the day. Mm -hmm. Love Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. For sure.
0: So, uh, Wes, it's a a real book. It's a genuine book. It feels good in the hands. Quality Mm -hmm. paper. He's got it here. He grabbed it. Uh, so what is it? Is it a walkthrough of uh, Raspbian, or is it? Uh,
1: yeah, and there's like a bunch of uh, projects in here. Like I'm seeing some code, and it's got you. It looks you like know, it's current, up Chromium and navigating the desktop, but nicely like current labeled. screenshots. Wow! Oh yeah, it was updated for uh, Raspberry Pi Four.
0: Really, really glossy print too.
1: But it's also got some nice prints of the you know the board to show you where all the ports are and what they do. This is yeah, it's a really really well good produced. book.
0: Yeah, that's a really good
1: book. That's wow! It's got oh. stuff for like you know you can get other kits for it. So here's like. Programming to light up LED board that you can attach to the Pi. You know what's funny is I've seen this book and I never
0: thought I never thought to get it and now, now I'm kind of glad I have it. I, the Raspberry Pi four is it feels like if you were just if you're not super familiar with the Raspberry Pis, it looks like a it looks like a regular Raspberry Pi maybe maybe slightly larger. The Ethernet and USB ports are switched around and uh, the most notable change for me is the power input is now a USB C connector. And gone is the full-size HDMI output replaced with two micro HDMI connectors. Right. Now, the desktop kit does come with two cables, for HDMI in the box, which is nice that because is nice. I needed that. And it's regular HDMI on one end, micro on the other side. And uh, it is undoubtedly a faster machine. It has a 1.5 gigahertz quad ARM V8, a 64-bit processor. Raspbian ships in 32-bit mode. Uh, the GPU is a Broadcom video core at 500 megahertz. Mine was a 4GB model, but you can also get it in 1 or 2 gigabytes. Side note, if you don't need the 4 gigabytes, you may want to consider the 2 gigabyte model because it comes with a passive cooler, I've been told. It has a gigabit Ethernet, as well as 2.4 and 5GHz Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 5.0, microSD for the storage. Of course, it's got the classic GPIO 40-pin header, and uh, it's loaded with USB. It's got two USB twos and th- uh, two USB threes, um, as well as full gigabit and Wi-Fi now because they're actually on their own controllers.
1: They're not shared on the USB bus. Pretty much the universal Raspberry Pi complaint.
0: Yeah, it really changes everything. I mean, it makes everything. It makes this. It makes this a real production usable machine. Uh, and so I. I really want. I was. I was skeptical. Um, and I'll I'll say right up front, it's not going to be my desktop. You know, and I don't have have no illusions of of replacing um an X eighty six machine from the last few years with this thing. Um, it to me feels like a machine from around 2011, 2010, with a decent processor, four gigs of RAM, and a spinning hard drive. Now, I was using SD storage, right. so uh, as they begin to support booting from USB storage, I'll try again with like a, a USB 3.0 SSD, and I bet it would be better. I'm sure it would be. But the overall desktop, for me, kind of meh. Um, I could see it definitely working anywhere where a computer that takes a little while to open up your web browser, sometimes it takes a little while for the next tab to open. It feels like a spinning Rust machine. Anywhere
1: where that workload is acceptable, you may get away with a Raspberry Pi. For most of the history of mankind's computing... Totally usable. If you're a, you know, desktop power user, you're going to hate it.
0: Yeah. So I uh, I did some thorough benchmarking on this thing. Oh, boy. I love the Pharonix test suite. Talked about it many times on this show before. And you combine that with the Open Benchmark website, you can compare your system to any system that's ever submitted their benchmarks to the Open Benchmark it's website. so cool. So I could compare this Raspberry Pi for... Uh, I went to machines as far back as 2011, and I was able to get a whole range of machines that I could compare this thing to. And as long as they performed the same types of tests that I did. Right. And we 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 did CPU performance. We did memory performance tests. We did audio encoding tests. I attempted to do video encoding, but um, it, that test failed on the Raspberry Pi 4. So I decided to try to find where this machine sort of fits when compared to an x86 machine, if you could buy an x86 machine, how much would you have to spend to have comparable performance to a Raspberry
1: Pi 4? I thought that'd be kind of interesting. Right, kind of the reverse here. You're, you're trying to optimize low, you know, can we find a cheap x86 that... Yeah,
0: how much would that cost? Yeah, I know it's, it's kind of a backwards way to think about it, but this, when you get a Raspberry Pi with this kind of performance, it gets to this awkward middle ground where it's, a little bit faster than an x86 machine, an older x86 machine at some operations mm-hmm. and slower at others. And it's kind of like, is this a job now for a Raspberry Pi or is this a job for a NUC, a used NUC or something? We're getting in that range. And so I compared this to an Intel Core 2 Quad. And I know that seems a little odd, but that's actually, uh, uh. this is, this is a 2011 system, um, that, uh, has a 2.4 gigahertz, four cores and four gigabytes of RAM. And what these tests will show, and they're all linked in the show notes. And by the way, if you're curious how your Raspberry Pi stacks up or your own desktop or laptop, one of the great things about the Phronix test suite is you can use my URL I have in the show notes, and you can compare your system. It'll run the exact same tests, and then it'll generate those bars you've seen on the Phronix websites. It'll generate those charts to show you how your machine differs from my machine. That's all linked in the show notes if you'd like to compare how your system would perform. What was interesting is when it came to a lot of CPU tasks, the Raspberry Pi 4 would lag behind a moderate 2011 Intel system. I I compared it to quad-cores and dual-core systems. And in almost all CPU-bound tasks, the Raspberry Pi 4 was
1: notably slower. Right. Not out of this world, not a different order of magnitude, but... Noticeably slow.
0: Generally, like at a lot of the audio encoding tasks, it was 10 seconds slower
1: right. than some of these Intel systems, but in aggregate, that adds Which up. Which kinda adds up, right? And it's like kind of makes sense with the other things we've seen. Totally usable. You could do those things there, but if you do them all the time, it's gonna be painful.
0: Where it surprised me and pulled ahead, and not too surprising when you consider the age of these systems, is operations that were more memory bound, uh-huh. memory performance tests the Raspberry Pi 4 often performed much better, not at all tasks, but often on, on the average performed better than the Intel systems. So if you're doing things in memory on like an embedded system, a Raspberry Pi in this case would actually be potentially a faster system than like an old used Intel box you have laying around the house. And it's without a question using way less power and yeah.
1: likely making a lot less noise too. Right. And I mean, that makes sense too, right? Unless you're doing serious crunching and work on your Pi. Probably a lot of times you have other devices attached to it, and you just need those CPUs to shuffle bits around.
0: Yeah, which we'll talk about here in just a second. So the question of how much would you have to spend on an x86 machine yeah. to beat the Raspberry Pi in performance, if you're willing to go used, and I think in this case you should, uh, right. we have a link for, to an example PC at PCLiquidators.com, $54.99 gets you an Intel Core 2 Duo at 2.93 gigahertz, four gigs of RAM, and a 250 gigabyte hard drive. Okay. And this system, based on the systems I was able to compare it to on the Pheronics, uh Open Benchmark website, would perform faster than a Raspberry Pi 4. So a $54 used x86. It's louder. It's going gonna, it's gonna to put out more heat. It's right. going to use more power. Um, there's not as big of a community around it. There's lots of other downsides. But just as a just as a reference point now... If this is starting to, you know, we're starting to get around a 2011 kind of performance, a little bit maybe 2010 performance of an x86 desktop on a $35, $45
1: computer. Yeah, that has, you know, modern Wi-Fi and, and modern ports and... A huge object, community. A huge community and lots of little gadgets and dongles and accessories for it too. So my
0: my walk away from my week with the Raspberry Pi as a desktop is I probably won't continue to really use it as a desktop for me. I could definitely see myself, like, if I wanted a workbench computer that I could look stuff up, have a terminal, um, you know, do some quick Google searches, 100%. Yeah, just as a computer to leave around somewhere extra just in case, great. I mean, with the desktop kit, you've got everything you need. You've got absolutely everything you need except for a screen. And I've got I've got screens floating yeah,
1: around. I bet I bet everyone
0: does. So I could totally, absolutely see myself using it in that scenario. But where I really see myself putting it in production now is more like a component of a wider home system now. With the networking options and now the faster storage options and the faster CPU. This thing can do, like, real image processing for me. It can do some real actual tasks. And I want to recommend that people take a look at the Flick case. I think it's a Flirk case. Mm-hmm. I've bought them before. They now have one in production for the Raspberry Pi 4. We'll link to some information. It shows genuine reductions in the thermals for the Raspberry Pi 4 using this Excellent. case. So something you want to consider if you're going to put this thing in long-term production. Also, if you look on Thingiverse you'll see a community building up around now the new Raspberry Pi 4 including a wicked awesome NAS enclosure that Alex found that accommodates a top slot for the Raspberry Pi 4 and then underneath it is room for SATA drives like large drives and they have different sizes they have some where you can print with the Nextcloud logo on the side um it's a, it's a it's a DIY NAS enclosure for the Raspberry Pi 4 that has some cross ventilation on it, like people are starting to design cases already to accommodate its higher heat profile.
4: My problem with the Raspberry Pi 4 is I have a 3B plus, and I use it to do octoprint for my 3D printer. It's wonderful for that. But my, my issue with the Raspberry Pi 4 is that by the time you buy the 4 gigabyte model, you buy a keyboard a mouse and mouse and all the rest of it. Uh, with this desktop kit, you're looking at what 120. US. If you get the desktop kit. I just built an x86 system to run PF Sense uh, around an i5 third gen. So I think it was a 3470T or something. Oh, low okay. power. Right. Pulls about 10, maybe 12 watts from the wall. Um, has significantly better performance, of course, than a Pi 4. Uh, and that cost me 100 US. Yeah. This puts for me, the Raspberry Pi, in a really awkward situation. Yes, you've got the network effect, the community the people on Thingiverse, all the rest of it. But without some kind of way to remove the SD boot situation, uh, because that really hurts performance of like apt update, etc. It's just in a really awkward spot now. It costs in that $100 price point.
0: I think it still has some significant advantages. I wouldn't underplay the community effect. There's so many images available, especially for some of the stuff we're going to talk about here in a moment. You just pop it on. It's good to go. That makes it approachable to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's. I think it is, you're right, in an awkward spot of like, if you just need a box that you're already experienced, you don't mind playing around on the Linux command line, maybe, then yeah, there's a lot of options there. But if you do maybe want like a project for someone, or you might not want a FUTS and you do want to treat it very appliance-like, the Pi is kind of unique.
0: But this, Alex, was the central struggle of my review. Um, I, I, before the show started, was not looking forward to this at all because... I bought the Raspberry Pi 4 thinking, finally, this will be the Raspberry Pi for me that's fast enough, Uh it's got enough RAM, now I can really use this sucker. And I ended up kind of thinking exactly what you're thinking. Boy, in most cases, I could use, like, some Nux that I have in the studio that I didn't want to use in production anymore. And for the other stuff, I could probably just use VMs, which would also be a little bit faster. Right. And I don't really know where the Raspberry Pi fits anymore. I thought it was exactly the opposite of my expectations. My expectations were this would finally make it the perfect fit. And instead, I'm, I'm even more lost. And so what Wes and I had to do was we spent the last two days putting our heads together, coming up with various different uses that really are perfect for the Raspberry Pi, like jobs that are great for the Raspberry Pi. And we've been slamming it into various different use cases. And we've landed on one that I think I like a lot, that I would never use an x86 PC for. Um, so that, you know, but I, I'm with you. It's The
4: Raspberry Pi 4 muddies that question more than it answers it. So back in 2012, I, I used it as a Raspberry MC box way before yeah. like LibreElec and all the rest of it. And it had pretty decent performance and was able to, for the price of $35, outperform anything in its price point. But now we have this huge market of system small system boards like the Pi Um, like cheese has a whole collection, I think. Um, and what the Raspberry Pi one did was it showed that there was a market for that sort of sub $50 single board computer. And whether the Pi four has knocked it out the park, I think is questionable simply because they've given you that option to go to the four gig. So I'm now evaluating it as a $55 device rather than a $35 device. And that really changes the game somewhat.
0: I agree, only in so much that I think only us geeks kind of care about that. I think the general public that, you know, a dad and a kid or a, a mom and a, and a daughter or a, a teacher and a class or whatever the scenario is where they, you know, it's people that are not inherently familiar with the options. They need, they need something that they recognize, something they can order on Amazon and, and the Raspberry Pi really fits
4: that. Only us geeks care about it anyway, don't we?
0: I don't know. I think the Raspberry Pi is one of those things that, like I say, it's in schools. It's a a good teaching thing. I mean, it was originally really all about learning Python. And I think that those roots have have given it success in some of those communities. So Cheesy, you understand the struggle too, because you and I were talking about this. And I know you've been working on kind of a neat implementation for your Raspberry Pi. So why don't you kick us off with some actual practical uses for this thing that's getting crazy fast? And really, even the older Raspberry Pis were fast enough to do some of this stuff.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I've been using the Raspberry Pi, man, since the OG uh, B model, but there are still some really great uses. And one that I came across recently was uh, Shinobi, which is basically just a network video recorder. Um, the ZoneMinder, uh, where ZoneMinder kind of ended, um, Shinobi has kind of picked up and taken, oh, oh, taken off from them. Uh, so it's, it's no JS, uh, super, super nice, super simple to install right now. Uh, I have it hooked up to a FOS cam, uh, that's just running, uh, the RTSP stream. I'm sitting, and this is on the three, I'm sitting at 3% CPU usage, about 250 megs of RAM. Um, and I've been recording kind of clips throughout the day, and I've used like 300 megabytes of storage. Uh, you can also add additional devices, uh, you know, easily into Shinobi. So uh, if you have additional cameras, there's so many settings. I haven't had an opportunity to dive in and deep dive into every little setting yet, uh, but there's a ton of different stuff in there. Uh, the only thing that I haven't found um, that I'm sure some other solutions, because I know there are some other NVR and, and uh, surveillance camera solutions for the Pi. I haven't found the plugin to allow me to do uh, motion detection yet. Um, Granted, I've only been messing it for, you know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. So
0: let me take over from here then, my friend. So we've been messing around with something a bit similar. It's uh, you can go deep or you can go light. And we kind of went kind of light and thin with our implementation. So we actually just did something on top of the Raspbian image that came on the SD card. So this is pretty low barrier to entry. And then we integrated it with a wider automation system. And this little task that we ended up doing, and that I finally got around to trying because I had a reason to with the Raspberry Pi 4 has opened my mind. To an amazing world of possibilities and fun geeky projects that could keep me busy for a year flat, yeah, that's sincere. he's actually legitimately excited. I'm so happy about this i'm this is gonna i I mean you could make an entire show out of this stuff it's it's so it's so good um so wes, why don't we start at the beginning? We're using a raspberry Pi with a logitech webcam, just something you bought off Amazon, Normal, yeah. This one's a C930, because we have a few of those around the studio, plugged into the USB 2.0 port on the Raspberry Pi 4, and then we're running some open-source software to do a little
1: bit of image magic. Oh, yeah. And you found it originally, funny enough, as, uh, of course, a you know bespoke distribution for the Pi called Motion iOS. But as is true with the Pi 4.0 being relatively new, it didn't have an updated image yet, but... It has great support just right in there. It turns out most of the packages we need were already in Raspbian. So all I had to do was get it installed, which turned out to be fascinatingly simple.
0: So it's just a most – the package that you want is just called Motion? Is that what so called? there's
1: multiple components, yeah. Okay. So Motion is this um, – is the back-end system that can talk to all the cameras, configure them – you know, add them and then actually watch them for motion. And then we're using a project on top called Motion MotionEye, which provides us a slick little GUI in the web that you can then go configure motion in the back end and just, you know, watch all your streams.
0: Yeah, it gives you a place to aggregate the cameras so you can have like a heads up. If you had a bunch of cameras, you can have them all on there. You can tweak all of the camera settings like the res and the refresh rates yeah. and the frame rates. But it also, this web interface also lets you set up a little webhook. Yeah.
1: It's exactly what you might want as a, you know, nerdy customizer because you can run a custom command. You can send an HTTP request with a webhook, like whatever you need. So now we've got that tied back into the Home Assistant. We just got set up at the studio.
0: Now motion, as the name implies, is watching a camera feed for motion. And then it is triggering an event when it's detected in that frame. It's then essentially notifying our Home Assistant install that an event has happened. And then what are we doing after Home Assistant becomes aware that motion's been detected?
1: Well, then you can do whatever you want. Um, Home Assistant's got some neat automation support, right? So you can have it trigger off a state of something attached on your network, or it has, you know, it has its own webhook provider. So once the webhook comes in, you can then interact with anything else you want. In our case, we're just having it turn off and on a light when we enter a room. But that was just a test case.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just quickly just grabbed a uh, random old uh, WeMo smart plug that hadn't been used in probably two years and plugged it in, got it updated, Home Assistant detected it. Wes got it working after uh, getting a manual uh, WeMo integration set up, which didn't take him too long. And then it was just a device that you could include in your overall actions when something happens. Yeah,
1: I've only been using this, you know, just in the past couple of days. But it is nice in that, you know, you can support just regular old devices that are supported on Linux, uh, plugged in over, you know, USB, or you can do stuff like RTMP or RTSP. And if maybe you're not an expert with those things, if you're running MotionEye on multiple systems, any you know you can interconnect. It basically exposes that video as a stream outside too, so you can connect them all together however you need. And here's where it gets pretty neat. So it gives you a lot
0: of options. First of all, it's clear how you could use this in a security scenario. Sure. Um, it's also nice from a safety scenario. You have lights turn on when you enter a room. But what I'm ultimately going for is presence awareness. And I want multiple levels of presence awareness. I want motion detectors to know when I'm in a certain room. I want a location service that notifies home assistant. I want home assistant to be communicating with my garage door. So when the garage door at the studio is opened, all these are different data points that I can use to automate things. But you can also use a system like this in a really relatively – lo fi low-key sort of security implementation. So the use case for us is I have a property with a barn on it. It's family property, and often when I'm traveling, we like to keep an eye on it. And I could deploy these Raspberry Pis. In this case, I only need to monitor two spots. So one spot, I could physically place the Raspberry Pi and put a camera on a door, and if motion's detected, it could alert me. And there's another spot that's about... On the other, well, it's really on the other side of the barn. So it's, it's a distance where I could put a network camera that could feed motion eye over RTP or Yeah. Because it can take in video for Linux. It can take in the Pi camera module itself, right. or it can take in an RTSP stream. And so that's a lot of different cameras you could all of a sudden pull into this thing and start watching for motion. And so with a relatively small setup, one Raspberry Pi 4 and I take my Ting MiFi. And have this thing sitting there. So if I need to access it or it needs to send me an alert, it has internet. But because everything would be on the Pi, it wouldn't be using internet otherwise. Right. It's no cloud. There's no cloud connectivity. No.
1: And, you know, it can do some of those other similar things, right? You can have it export a movie, say, of an X amount of time around when the motion was detected. It can send you an email when it does detect motion. So
0: I also get, I can get the picture. Yeah, you can, get a, you can get
1: a still picture. So it's a great
0: way to keep an eye on things at the barn for a pretty low price. I've already got the cameras. It's a webcam and an old crappy wireless camera from like 10 years ago, but you know, it, good enough. it's good enough to detect motion and it's, it pivots, it moves around. So it, it's actually kind of a perfect use for this and um, I'm not using it for anything else. So I I actually think this would be a great use for it. And I wouldn't want to put an x86 PC in a barn that I'm not at, but there's a perfect shelf that has a power plug there that I can put this on. I have a Ting MiFi that I'm not using right now that I'll just set right next to it. So it always has internet connectivity, whether I'm
1: there or not. Nice to have a little box too, right? You can you could SSH in there if you need to for some reason. Suddenly, it's like you're there.
3: Does Motion allow you to stream multiple cameras at once? And uh, does Motion also allow you to have multiple accounts uh, creation so that you can, let's say, group cameras or restrict cameras to user level access? So, let's say if I wanted my mom, you know, to have access to my outdoor cameras but not the indoor cameras. I could set up an account within Shinobi to only limit her to you know, oh, see nice. these specific cameras. Um, and she could even add in her own cameras with her own link.
4: This is a second recommendation for Shinobi from me. Uh, and a little bit of uh, secret information. Linux server will be releasing a Docker of Shinobi pretty soon. Ooh, That's great. Cool. That's
0: great. Yeah, so most the motion... I, web software, will allow
1: you to add multiple cameras. Does it do users, though, Wes? It has some users. I've not played with that yet, so it might be something to look into.
0: I kind of wonder if... See, I think we have two different use cases here, really, because motion, for us, the primary use case we're trying to get out of it is motion detection in a video to then trigger automation events. I think if you're looking for actual... Um, surveillance footage. Yeah, more
1: CCTV stuff. Shinobi right. seems like it's just great.
0: Right. I'm not really going for that. I, I'm not going to be reviewing the footage. I don't. I don't want to watch people. I just want to use webcams that I have as a motion sensor to trigger further automation. So that's why it's nice for me.
3: I'm pretty sure that Shinobi can also do that, where you can tie into it, uh, like the what is it, the IFTT or whatever.
0: Yeah, they may have, like, a webhook thing. That'd be awesome. If there was only a container of it that I could try out right now. Oh, jeez.
4: Hmm. Hmm. Well, there is. She made be make one as well, but uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Linux server, obviously, the permissions thing. So
0: And we might give it a go. You know, it wouldn't be bad. It wouldn't be bad to have both, right? Um. I think the nice thing about motion that I liked a lot about it was that it was just a really quick install from the repos, and now we have motion detection. Yeah,
1: like looking at some of the Shinobi doc, it seems like just fine there is motion detection, but there's like a little more going on. And probably this isn't the best or most sophisticated motion detection, but you're right. It kind of hit the sweet spot of installed it straight from the repo, not a lot of dependencies, and I mean, it's worked for us so and far. And you can
0: throw it on a Raspberry Pi. I mean, we have, we have a stack of Raspberry Pis around here.
1: The Pi 4 is doing great. I'm watching, you know, a 30 FPS video. It's streaming right now from the camera. No problem.
0: That's what I'm saying. It's like the Pi 4 has the horsepower now to do some of this camera stuff and really keep up with the networking, too which is nice.
4: Have you considered doing something like a Kubernetes cluster with them?
0: <laughs> I mean, have I considered it? No. Am I aware that people are maniacs like that? Yes, I am aware. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you wanted to, you
1: know, had a whole bunch of Pi apps you wanted to run, why not? Well, it's a great educational
0: opportunity, too. too. It is just great for that. Um, so, I, yeah. Um, so there are a couple of things you need to know if you're thinking about buying one, because I know some people are waiting for them to be more generally available, Uh, As you heard us mention, USB boot doesn't work yet. Also, Pixie boot does not work. They say that's coming. Ooh, nice. Some USB-C chargers don't work, specifically the smarter ones. (laughs) So watch out for that. Just for now, get an official one. Um, And in general, uh, it's more prone to throttling. Ours, the desktop kit, comes in a plastic case. And when I started benchmarking it the first day, it made the entire room S- stink of plastic because it had heated up the plastic molding and when, as the plastic heated it released that chemical smell and even today a week later uh, when I open up the Raspberry Pi to see if it had a cooler or not because I couldn't remember which it does not um, I got a big face full of that plastic smell like it's running hot and around four minutes of it running out full blast it starts throttling pretty noticeably that said if you're browsing the web you know you're doing stuff like bursty here and there, you generally don't even see it. It's not a huge deal. You throw a proper cooler on that thing, you'll get even more mileage out of it. And the 4GB RAM edition is very hard to get your uh, hands on. The 2GB and 1GB are much more readily available right now. Keep in mind, when Raspbian ships on it, it's shipping in 32-bit, even though it's a 64-bit processor. You only got 4 gigs of RAM anyways, though, so it doesn't really matter. Overall, I think it's it is probably my favorite Raspberry Pi. And I asked the audience what they're using theirs for. Uh, Seth says that uh, these days he uses one as a print server for his i3D printer. Uh, he uses Octopi. And uh, I think I've heard a few people say they use it for that. Uh, Lenny says he uses his Raspberry Pi as a transmission server. Ah, oh, nice. This is a good use for that. Of course, several people uh, wrote in said they use Kodi. Using sure. it for Cody, absolutely. Um, that which was my first go-to, but I was like, "No, nah, I want to come up with something that's not Cody," because that's like everybody expects that. Um, I, I thought this one was interesting. Uh, Salton says he uses it as a CoTurn server, uh, and uh, he's planning to set up also to use it as a Nextcloud Talk server in the future. And he uses his other Raspberry Pi as a Cody box. Excellent. Yeah,
1: I'm sure it runs Pi Hole just great too.
0: Yeah, lots of Pi Holes came in, and then Lewis said, uh, like Cheesy uses it as an SSH server, which he then hops to. The other boxes, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, the other one is a Plex server, and another one, dang, as uh, Nextcloud NAS. And to your point, uh, Alex, planning to eventually set up a four-node Kubernetes Pi cluster. Beautiful, <laughs> nice.
3: And you can't you can't forget the Pi Hole either. You know,
0: no, you got to have the Pi Hole. Though we've talked about that. I, the only reason I didn't bring it up because we did a we did a whole episode on it, so I, that's in the back catalog. But worth checking out if you don't know what we're talking about. That's also a very good use for the Raspberry Pi. So check out my links when we're in the benchmark sections um, of the show notes because that's where you can get um my particular test that you can compare. One of the really, really neat things about the Open Benchmark website is they have a big old like identifier uh hash at the end of the URL. You can copy that and do a comma and append it to another another one and you can compare any system that way. You can you can and you can add another comma and, a, and compare another one and the website will generate the charts and graphs to show you all the different systems. Mm, that's so it's great. really nice. If you've done some benchmarks in the past, you can just go grab my test ID and my identifier and then just add a comma, paste it in there, compare it to yours, see if it's worth an upgrade. You can just see it right there. Um, that's and it's funny because I have my I compared some of my old systems that we've had in for review over the years that are up on Open Benchmark just to kind of see where it, that's where, fantastic. So I could kind of get an idea of like where does it land in the generation of Intel's. That's pretty neat. That's all in there. All right, one last bit of business before we get out of here. We have a pick that we've been sitting on for a little while. Like this pick, this pick needs like a round of applause. It's so good because it's finally broken us. Of the Google Docs habit. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to
1: Cody MD. The, the funny part here is I was just going to go look this up. I wanted to pull the link up for myself as we're doing the show, but of course. You're doing it from Cody MD?
0: Yeah, I am. It's a real time collaborative markdown editor. That is a web-based application, and its collaborative editing is better than Google Docs. And one of my favorite things about it, it has three editing modes, Sublime, Emacs, and Vim, which is amazing. You should see Wes whip around this thing in Vim mode. It's Ooh, great. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and we've been trying it out internally because, honestly, we've been down this road a 100 times and have ended up back in the embrace of Google Docs. But uh, being able to self-host this one in particular on, on our own system, the real-time updates are better than Google Docs. The great support for Markdown, the multiple editing modes, including uh, you got Markdown split pane mode with Markdown on one side, real-time update and rendering on the other side. It's, it works for the way I tend to do live shows where I, where I need links in a certain format where I can click on them while I'm talking. Yes. It So it checks boxes that I have personally for how I present on air. But it's also just such a great editor that I use it for just my general notes. And I'm seeing more and more. It's just taking off. I'm seeing more and more people use it. I'm seeing open source projects start to use it. I'm seeing podcasts that are using it. It's a really good tool. And I think it's just time we gave it some love because we've been using it internally, kind of holding our breath. I mean, initially, like literally, literally I think I think the words you use when you put it up on our system was, well, I tossed it up on there so, uh, you know. I mean, I think it's working. And then we just started using it, and we have not gone back. And it's it's been a while now. So check out CodyMD. I think their name is about to change. And so keep an eye out for that, but we'll have a link in the show. And I've seen some – I followed, like, one of their change logs, and they're talking about a name change in
3: there. I don't know. I don't know. I well, see. and it should be said, too, that I think we've had up to seven or eight people collaborating on one document at one time in real – like, in real time, seven people on one document – there's been zero hiccups.
1: No, you know they're all working. If you're especially like they're not in your own different area of the dock futzing with stuff, you just you just keep going.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then our our last pick, top grade, which upgrades everything. Who found this one? That'd be me. Yeah, all right, Cheesy. Tell me about this.
3: Lazy cheese. So, top grade, essentially, you know, uh, we all install all of the things on our systems. Um, top grade supports uh, Arch, Red Hat, Debian, Gentoo, SUSE, Void, uh, Dragonfly, the BSDs, Mac OS, and Windows. Um, and it basically will update all of the things. So, whether that be a pip package or uh, Vim, uh, Neo Vim packages, Um, Python, uh, you know, Python from Pipex, just regular updates, uh, ZHS shell updates. I mean, everything you could want to do, essentially, um, upgrades for your Windows uh, subsystem for Linux under Windows. So basically one tool to kind of rule them all um, as far as updating your system and keeping it up to date.
1: Okay, this sounds actually pretty sweet.
3: Yeah, I was going to
0: mock you for like, uh, like, is this like a meta package manager? Wait,
1: wait, also, what? it's written in Rust.
0: All right, well, I'm in. I'm done. That's it. That's it. That's all I needed. There you have it right uh, there. Atom
3: packages, flat pack, snaps. So all of the things, man.
0: I hadn't really appreciated the fact that uh, I got to run like several different updaters now. You're right. That's really annoying. And this does solve that. Cheese, you solved a problem before I knew it was a problem. Oh. I knew I hired you for a reason. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it, everybody. Uh, Popey was in and out, so I think that means he's probably going to be back on the Ubuntu podcast very soon. So if you haven't caught that recently, go check that out at ubuntupodcast.org. And he's also on my favorite podcast in the whole world, User Air. So go check that out at, is it air.show or user air.show? Air.show. So I don't know because I just subscribed to my podcast. That's player. way easier. It is. You can also do that for this show. In fact... Would you believe this here show is in, like, the top 60 technology podcasts on all of iTunes in the U.S. very say frequently? what? I can't say top 50 yet. But we could crack it. If you go over there and give us a thumbs up and a review on iTunes, and I know only a few of you use it. If you use Apple Podcasts, more of you use that. We could use your help. We may crack the top 50 in all tech podcasts in the United States. And, and we're crushing it in some other countries, too. So, actually, call out to those of you outside the U.S. Amazing. I know. It's actually really neat. Help spread the good word of the Humble Linux podcast. All right. See you back here next Tuesday.
1: Our title, you know, I uh, just ran download because it's Rust, right? So you just download the tar, and there's a single executable in there, and away you go. Mm. So it's upgrading all my things. I'm not even sure I know how to really update Emacs packages, uh, you know, by yeah. by hand, but uh, that's fine now because they're done. I'm gonna try
4: it on my Fedora box, yes, and here's all the gems. All right, wow, really? That's pretty neat. Yeah, OKML, okay, all, all the stuff, dude. I was about to give Cheese a hard time for not using Ansible or something, and then I actually read what it did, and then shut up because <laughs> that is amazing. Good job, good find. Well,
3: you know, it's, I know that I've ran into that problem where, you know, I've had additional PIP packages or something that I've installed and... Yeah, no one checks those things. No. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll apt update whatever I'll, you know, and but I never think to update that PIP package. So having something that I can just, boom... Any package that's essentially on the system
4: gets updated. I didn't run brew upgrade on my Mac for a year plus.
0: <laughs> the only time I ever update YouTube DL is when it fails to download. Right. I'm like, oh, right. I need to go update that. So now it's on, I'm on like the YouTube DL direct track. Yes. Getting the good right stuff direct. There. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I wasn't exaggerating. I feel like um, like this, this stuff, just we just touched the surface of Home Assistant, and it was like, like
4: a new world has opened up to me. I'm... uh Wow. Yeah, man. I told you in in my talk at Linux Northwest, right? I know. You have to solve a real world problem. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like your eyes just light up and you're like, this is amazing. It's
0: like uh, I talked about uh, just kind of like a revelation I had with Docker and containers on Coder recently. It's like when I get my hands on it, like there's the practical and then there's the hands on. And when you go
1: hands on. It's, for me, it's just a whole nother level of appreciation and fascination. It's direct meaning, you know. You can actually see it's solving problems that you hadn't solved before. Well, Poppy, it was great to have you on the show today. Welcome back, sir. How was the travel? Uh, it was good. Suffering from jet
0: lag, but uh, it it's was... It's too late. It's gone. No, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> we right, just let him keep going. Yeah, we'll just do it. Uh, yeah. do, you want, do you want to... I mean, if you, if you can join us on the Chrome app if you want, if, yeah, but then you just have to record locally is the only downside no no okay <laughs> all right Fuck well it was good having you <laughs> Linux sucks yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it really awesome. to Windows. <laughs> all right well it was good seeing you glad you, you can, can get it in installed guys. by the end of the show Bye. come Bye. back on
4: love you all love you bummy. <laughs>